On the Real Issue podcast last week, I addressed four reasons why people need to be about defending why they believe what they believe. This week, we're going to talk about a biblical look at doing just that. So it's time to get real about a biblical look at doing apologetics. And thank you for listening to the Let's Get Real podcast. My name is Rob Lundberg, and I'm your host. That's right, a new name uh, from the Real Issue podcast to Let's Get Real. And what we're going to do is we're going to do just that. We're going to get real. We're going to get real about doing apologetics. Now, you know, we, we talked about last week in our last show that I gave you four pieces of um, evidence. I gave you four reasons, I guess you could say. With regards to doing it, uh, why people need to do it, why we need to do it as Christians. One of those is the fact that the Bible commands it. And secondly, the, re- the, the fact that reason also demands it. And also, the world, thirdly, is crying out for it. That's right, the world is crying out for it. Because if they're going and they're seeing you as a Christian, they are going to be wondering why you're a Christian, what reasons you can give. And then not only that... Contrary to popular belief in many in the church today, results are coming forth as a result of um, giving reasons and doing an apologetic before uh, sharing the gospel. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product of that, in fact. And, uh, you know, when you have uh, uh, reasons because of my skepticism or anybody else's skepticism, for that matter, you bring forth those reasons, chances are those reasons are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to go and soften the heart and the mind toward the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have gone and taken into consideration, we have thought about uh, the reasons why Christian, the Christian faith is true. But what I want to do today is I want to deal with the whole look at a biblical way, a biblical look at doing apologetic. And I want to speak to it from the perspective of several points. You know, Jesus is the model, contrary to what people think about apologetics. Some people think, well, you know, you don't just try to argue somebody in the kingdom of heaven. That's not necessarily so. Some people will think that you can do that, but that's not always the uh, the case because Jesus actually used the conversational model, and that's the model that we use with our ministry. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time talking to people within the corpus of the first seven chapters of John's gospel. Whether he is talking to individuals, small groups, or large crowds, there is an immediacy and an intimacy in which he does this. The goal for Jesus is for people to know God and to see him as the one who is sent by the Father. You know, but there seems to be some hesitation as to why the church is actually slow in getting this concept. You know, I'm pretty sure that the concept of the 2080 principle is factored in here. Now, what do we mean by the concept of the 2080 principle? That whole idea means is the fact that 20% of the people are doing the 80% of the work that's going on and needed to do in the church. Now, doing the work of evangelism and doing Great Commission Kingdom work is no different. Why is this so? Well, perhaps uncertain, uh, perhaps we are uncertain about engaging with, with some people because we do not feel like we have all the answers. The truth is that none of us know exactly what to say all the time, not even myself. Whenever I'm talking to somebody at a reason rally or involved in a conversation with somebody at a local coffee shop, 
You also have to just rely on the Holy Spirit for those things to happen, but you also have to study. The truth is that none of us do know exactly what we're going to say all the time, and, and being a good apologist involves thinking about questions that need to be raised to other people's answers, and even questions that need to be brought up or put forth to the questions that are asked of, the, of themselves. Now, reading through the four Gospels, reveals that Jesus asked over 100 questions uh, of his critics and his questioners. Why did he do that? What do questions do? Well, questions open up the person to their own assumptions. Asking questions of the questions was a key tactic of Jesus because he encouraged people to think, which is a novel concept today in a lot of church circles. Asking questions forces people to think. Contrary to practical outworking of the church, thinking is not the enemy of the Christian faith. We consistently see Jesus asking questions to make people think about what they were saying. For example, in Luke chapter 18, we see the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, instead of saying uh, that a man should just believe, Jesus asks him a question. What he's doing is he's opening up a uh, with a question to ask the question of the man so that he can open him up to his own assumptions. He asks the question, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Getting someone to think about their assumptions is, is very, very important. Asking questions is frequently a better way to do this than spiritually mugging a drive-by evangelism uh, and going and uh, body slamming, spiritually body slamming a person and jumping into some kind of tailed, uh, detailed rebuttal. In a conversation, people are listening to and thinking about what other, the other person is saying. In an argument, people end up in an automatic response mode. You know, there's a big difference. Conversation versus response mode. You know, if somebody's going and, and saying something, and you're in response mode, you're going to be thinking about what you're going to say, and you're not really listening to the person, where if you're involved in a conversation, you're going to be listening to the person, you're going to be having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, a mind-to-mind -mind conversation with that person, and you're going to be able to engage those questions that he has, and possibly the Holy Spirit will work with you to bring forth a question to help you understand where that person is coming from and why they might be believing what they believe. It also, um, questions also expose contradictions. If you ask a question that is also a gentler way of exposing contradictions, for example, in the case of cultural relativism today that we live in, you know, if somebody says to you, there's no such thing as truth, what are you going to say? Well, is that true? If somebody says, um, if there was, if uh, there's no such thing as truth, if there was, I would have a reason to live. Well, that's a little bit harder. That that's a little bit uh, a brasher question or statement that that person is making. But remember, as I shared with you earlier, that behind every person is an objection or a question, and we are dealing with the objection and the question, or or the question instead of dealing with the person. So we can come alongside the person and address where they are having difficulties. You know, a, a response of some sort to this objection would be, you know, you say that there's no such thing as truth, and tell me, is that statement true? 
It is correct to conclude that life must be meaningless if there is no such thing as truth. But the faulty assumption is made that, that uh, the belief, or the claim that everything is relative can be meaningfully stated. Let me see if I can put it this way. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, even if you talk about it, uh, talk, uh, talk it about God. You know, when you deal with the fact that if, there, if it is an absolute truth claim, which it is, uh, that there is no such thing as truth, okay, that's the absolute truth claim, that it follows that not everything is relative. Or, or let's say that, let's say that uh, somebody says that all truth is relative. Let's work with it that way. To say that everything is relative is to make an absolute truth claim whether we realize this or not. The person is actually making an absolute truth claim when they say all truth is relative. If it is an absolute claim, which it is, then it follows that not everything is relative, including the statement. Literally, nothing has been said, and you run into a similar problem if you try to deny that there's no such thing as truth. What you're saying, in effect, is that this, the truth is that there is no such thing as truth. However, if the statement is true that there is no such thing as truth, if there is no such thing as truth, then the statement is not true. If it is not true, then why believe it? The statement is literally nonsensical, and nonsense remains nonsense, as C.S. Lewis said, even if you talk about it with God. Now, questions also define the issues behind it. In an evangelistic encounter, people will ask, what do you think about a particular moral issue? Our knee-jerk response frequently as Christians is that we want to jump in with answers to the questions without really taking a moment about the assumptions in people's minds concerning the issue that they're raising. We see this in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the question of whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Jesus knows that the question was a trap, and Matthew also tells us this in Matthew 22, verse 15. You see, Israel was under occupation by the Romans, who were regarded by the Jews as the evil oppressors. To pay the poll tax, which was what the tax was, and certainly to collect them was seen to be strengthening the hand of the enemy. Was not Israel's Israel God's chosen people? Was this not their land? Surely the Romans, uh, surely to help the Romans was to go against God himself, was the mind in the minds of the Israel, Israel is the people of Israel. Now in the minds of the listeners, if Jesus was going to be on God's side, he was expected to say no. If he says no, it will get back to the authorities like the Romans, and he'll be arrested, which is what the questioners actually wanted. That's why, they, why Matthew tells us that he was going to trap them. If he says yes, then he will um, lose the respect of the people. As far as the questioners are concerned, it is a win-win situation. It was kind of like a double trap. If he says yes, uh, it is right to pay taxes, the Jews have him. If he says no, then the Romans have him, and then, of course, they're rid of him. But Jesus asks for a coin, and he asks this question. He says, whose portrait is on this? And he asks, and from this perspective, whose inscription? And, of course, Caesar's was the reply of the people. And then Jesus responds with what? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and what is God to God's. Give to God what is God's. Jesus' Jesus' answer was that he redefined the issue at hand. He says it is that it is right to pay taxes, but answers in such a way to make certain that no one misunderstands what he was saying. 
not only is the question answered, but also the sentiment and the prejudice lying behind the question was put to bed. Now, let's take a modern illustration of the same stripe, and let's use the question of abortion. The issue is normally phrased as terms of choice. Does a woman have the right to choose what happens to her own body, quote-unquote? Now, the question, when phrased this way, seems to allow only one answer, and the answer, obviously, is yes. But it is wrong. It is the wrong starting question. The first question is how to define life. When, when does someone have the right to terminate an innocent person's, um, an innocent person's life? To answer the question of choice without raising, first raising the issue about how to define life is to fall into the trap by failing to effectively communicate with pe the people listening. Giving the right answer does not always rectify the problems of asking the wrong question. The question must first be reformulated before any answer can be given. And this is where a lot of Christians fail whenever they're doing face-to-face -face evangelism. They get a question, and then all of a sudden they want to go and turn to the pages of the Bible. That is not the right approach. What we need to do is deal with the motives of the people. And let me speak to that for a moment here. When we talk about exposing motives, asking questions is also about exposing people's motives. Again, in Luke's gospel, did Jesus really want to answer his own, an answer to his own question? His question is designed to reveal their own motives, and their most appropriate response would be an apology for the way that they were treating him. It is important to distinguish between people who like debating games and those who are sincerely interested in the answer to a question. And not all the time will you get somebody who's actually interested in the answer that you give them. You have to really be careful nowadays with people going and asking the question. Sometimes people will want to know if you can really answer the question. But again, asking a question is the easiest way to do this. Tell me, if I were to answer this question for you, would you become a Christian? That's an interesting question normally focuses the mind quite quickly. That question focuses the mind quite quickly. Now, helping someone to understand their own motives and asking questions gives them a chance to reflect on the importance of what is at hand. We are not involved in evangelism to play games with people. The stakes are too important. They're too high for doing this. Now, there's another thing that we also need to think about when asking questions of people. Asking questions gives you, um, gives uh, the person you are talking to a vital opportunity to explain where they are coming from and what they believe. Let me say that again. Asking questions gives the person you are talking to the vital opportunity to explain where they are coming from and what and why they believe what they might believe. Let me invite you to check out Luke 10 and, 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 and 18. Each answer that Jesus gives on eternal life is tailored to the individual he is speaking to. Apologetics can become mechanistic. 
Although the truth of the gospel remains constant, we must not think that by repeating things we have said to other people in the past, we will automatically get the same responses to the same, or, or even get the same questions to the same responses and so forth and speak to the questions and all that. You know, you get what I'm saying here. Now, when we go and we ask questions or we're challenged with people's charges against God. Now, when I talk about charges against God, I'm talking about moral complaints against God. What will happen to people who have never heard the gospel? Like, for example, that question itself. You know, what about those who have not heard the gospel? I've got a blog post on that. You can find it on The Real Issue um, on my on on my blog at roblundbergapologetics.com. Now, again, let me just restate them. Uh, a lot of people struggle with the whole idea of what will happen to those who have never heard the gospel and what about those who are suffering. These two questions are similar in both being moral complaints against God. Are you saying that so-and-so went to hell? The answer to this question is that we do not know. We are not in a position to judge who will be in heaven and who is not in heaven, and it is a mistake to get drawn into that debate. What we do know is that there will be no miscarriages of justice on the day of judgment. In Revelation 19.2, we read that the multitude will declare that God's judgments are true and just, because why? He is the perfect judge. What we can do is assure them that God's justice will be true and just, but how do they stand? What about someone who is offered forgiveness and then turns it down? First, address the problem of love. Many will recognize that the idea of life without love is an aberrant one. Whether it is expressed in music or in psychology, love is seen as an essential ingredient to life. And of course, our language, we use one word, but there's actually four meanings to love in the Greek. Love must be frequently given, though, for it to be meaningful. However, if it is capable of being freely given, then it must also be capable of freely being freely withheld. If God were to create a world in which love can be expressed and experienced, he must create a world in which mankind also has freedom. Not only do we need a world with freedom, we also need a world in which there are real alternatives for us to exercise that freedom. When God created the world, he created one that had freedom and order that may have love in it. Yet if we are free to love, then we are also free to do evil. At this stage, anyone who wants to object must also somehow demonstrate that it is possible to create a world capable of love in which there is no freedom. And that cannot be done. That cannot be done at all. You know, we must remember that choices entail certain consequences. And we are free to make our choices, but not free to dictate the consequences. The choices we exercise affect not only ourselves, but also the environment in which you and I live. And this is something to remember in our COVID world today. The pandemic is, is, is really raging 
We have social justice. We have intersectionality. We have critical race theory, critical theory, and all the other theories and stuff that are going and putting, creating this boxcar effect where if you're in one boxcar and you're going, you talk about your views, there's somebody else in the boxcar behind you in order to be able to go and say that theirs is worse than yours or theirs is better than yours. This is where apologetics is definitely needed today and learning how to ask the questions of the person that you're cordially speaking to. Now, if they don't want to be cordial to you, understand that there's probably nothing there and you just have to love them, see them as somebody creating the image and likeness of God. But you see, when God created the world, he did not sit back quietly holding his breath, holding his breath and hoping that nothing would go wrong and then react with surprise when it did. The scriptures do talk about uh, the fact of the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world in Revelation 13, 8. Not only did Jesus create the world that could enjoy love, he knew what would go wrong and was prepared to pay the price to rescue it, and he did. And the price was not trivial. It was far from trivial. It cost him his very human life. As a matter of fact, it was pain and suffering. It was the pain and suffering of a cross, of nails going through the wrist between the radius and the ulnar, that gap there. You can take your finger and go and feel right where your hand meets the first part of your wrist, and you can feel between your radius and your, um, your, radius and your uh, ulna, which is your, your two arm bones, and you can feel where that nail went. And it shoots a pain right up, right up the arm of the radial nerve. That's what Jesus took for you. Both arms, chest cavity stretched out. And he bled to death for you, shedding his blood on the cross for your sins and mine. What we need to do is we need to understand that questions are vitally important. That's right. Questions are vitally important. That's how you and I should be going and talking to people today. We need to remember that questions expose contradictions. We need to remember that they get people to think. We need to remember that it was the model of Jesus. We need to remember that, you know, even though there's 20% of the the work that, that, uh, there's 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, the more people we have understanding that we're gaining, getting more apologists and getting those folks out there to be able to go and communicate this message this way is going to go and create an army of apologists that are going to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ and demonstrate the fact that we can think intelligently with a person to be able to go and answer their questions as best as possible. Questions, though, again, back to this, questions also are important because they question the question of the individual. They also deal with handling moral complaints against God. And not only that, they expose motives. You know, if you, go, you and I go out and we think of, of, of a person that we know, and we go and we deal with the questions that they have, sometimes it may not be the fact that they're going to go and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in that moment. But that's okay. You're doing what Greg Kokel calls in his book Tactics, putting a stone in somebody's shoe. You're going and demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ to somebody who is looking for some kind of truth. They're not looking for God. They're looking for truth, and they're going and they're hanging on their own truth right now. 
but their truth is relative, and it changes and shifts day after day. You and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You and I are those that need to go and be able to go and love a person, see them as creating the image and likeness of God, and be willing to sit down with them and say, how is life? How is life really going for you? And just let the conversation flow. Let the conversation flow. And if you do that, then you know what? You are doing what Jesus wants you to do. You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. That's right. We have a new name, uh, a new format. Notice that there was no commercials today. We want to make sure that you enjoy this and you're able to stick through without any interruptions. We're going to be doing more of this in the future. And I want to thank you for indulging us today. If you do have any questions, you can feel free to email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com or give us a call at 540-424-2162. Also, uh, check us out at roblundbergapologetics.com. Also, check out our um, YouTube channel. Let's get real with Rob Lundberg as well. Uh, that's also there. You, but all you have to do is just do the search Rob Lundberg and you'll be able to find us there. We're making some changes, making some good changes, I believe. And I'm hoping that this is one of those ones that we'll be able to stick with for some time. So thank you for listening this week. And we'll be back with you next week as, with another show. And hopefully um, we'll be able to follow the same format. But thank you for listening. And as you go out this week, as your states open up, as your opportunities open up to have conversations one-on-one with somebody, make sure you go out and give them heaven. We'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. Mm-hmm.